Hello and welcome to another episode of the Petrolhead Podcast. I'm Kyle Mayer. I'm Chaz Logue. And this is episode six. This episode is a little bit different than uh, what we have been doing for the last couple of episodes. Um, We are actually skipping uh, a few things uh, that we normally talk about. There's... There is some news in the racing world. Um, Racing series are starting to ramp up and uh, plan for the rest of the year. However, we're not going to get too much into that. Um, While we are going to talk about one current news item, um, we are going to skip over our Watch It With Us segment uh, this week and return to it uh, in our next episode. And the reason being is that we've been planning for a little while to do a uh, Formula One versus MotoGP uh, topic on the podcast, and uh, we decided that it was best just to do, to devote an entire episode to Formula One versus MotoGP uh, because there's just so much to talk about, and there's no way that we could fit it into 20 or 30 minutes um, at the end of an episode uh, after talking about the news and our Watch It With Us segment. So um, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about some of the key aspects of each series, uh, kind of help to educate each other. I'm the MotoGP fan. Jazz is the Formula One fan. So we're going to help each other understand each series better and educate each other so that when we do watch those series and those races, uh, when they eventually start up again, uh, we'll be more informed, more engaged, and uh, able to be better fans. However, uh, before we get into that, Chaz wanted to talk about uh, one important news item that came up just today, uh, or yesterday maybe, just came up within the last couple of days. So uh, take it away, Chaz. Yeah, so this is, um, uh, so I'm not the biggest Formula E fan. I'm actually, I've been trying to get it more into it, especially because they have a Jaguar team uh, that I'd like to support a little bit. So that's kind of pulled me to to start watching some Formula E. Of course, now they're not really doing much. But uh, we've been talking about a lot about the virtual racing series, so all these people doing virtual races and, and what that's meant. And we talked a little bit about Simon Paginot and, and, and the uh, uh, the scandal, if you will, that they had. IndieGate. Uh, hashtag IndieGate. IndieGate. Oh, no. <laughs> and you heard it here first. Maybe not. Maybe that's very good. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> so the biggest thing that's happened is there was a Formula E race, right? So just a, a quick recap of what's happened. And one of the drivers uh, for Audi um, was uh, Daniel. Wait, I, I racing? I racing Formula E race? Yeah. So so one okay. of the yeah. So there was one of the Formula E drivers for Audi is is Daniel Apt, and they decided to do this virtual race. Uh, it was it was part of a series like a stay at home series, and there it was raising money for UNICEF charity and things like that. Uh, well, Daniel Apt wasn't the best uh, virtual racer, um, so he had he hadn't had good results. So what he did was he hired a quote unquote professional sim racer. Uh, to race in his place and and take it. Now I, I think so. He ended up, or the the driver he hired ended up coming in third. And then when they looked into it, they said, oh, that's weird. The location didn't match, right? Like your computer location didn't match where you are. It was somewhere else. And that's when they realized it was a different driver. They called him out on it. Initially, they uh, they had him apologize and they had him uh, give money to a charity. And from there, it quickly moved into Audi saying, well, no, if you're going to cheat and you're you're racing under our colors, then you are no longer an Audi driver. So he's been dropped by the Audi team, uh, the Formula E Audi team, and he no longer has a seat. Uh, he released a statement afterward, like a YouTube video saying he was sorry. Uh, basically saying that he orig- he planned on this to be a joke um, was his defense, basically saying he was going to hire this person and then they were going to do really well. And then he's going to come out and say, oh, guys, it wasn't me. Ha, 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 ha. 
Um, not something he cleared with Audi. I don't know if it's something he came up with the fact to save face or if that was really the, the you know, what was going to happen. But either way, it doesn't matter. The consequences are holding and uh, he's lost his seat. So now this kind of leads to the debate of should your actions in a video game, virtual racing, should that actually um, impact you in the real world? Um, so, you know, I have my thoughts on that. But Kyle, what are, what are your initial thoughts on that when you saw that? Yeah. Has it been confirmed that he's actually been sacked from the team or is it still just sus- suspended and the act and the actual uh, sacking is still just kind of gossip rumor, maybe happening, maybe not happening? Yeah, so I already said that um, you know this is not this is not what we stand for. Uh, so he is uh, he is being suspended from the team. Um, and then uh, you know Daniel came onto his video and he said, yeah, we're parting ways. We're not working together going forward. Hmm. Uh, is how he talked in his video. And then um, you know saying that he's hitting like an ultimate low point in his life right now. Uh, but he knows he'll bounce back and recover. So it was you know it was it was it was sad, uh, but it was uh, you know uplifting at the same time. Thinking like this is not the bottom. He's gonna move on from here. Love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean if I were an IndyCar owner, I would be calling him right now. Actually, I would have been calling him yesterday and be like, Yo, drive for me, please. Uh, you're a free agent, and uh, you'll probably get more more wins and more more television exposure and more glory in IndyCar than you ever would in Formula E. It's interesting. I didn't know that he came out on his video and said that it was all just a joke. And it's curious that maybe we as I, I mean, I don't know how you interpreted that, but it brought because I, I know a little bit about German culture because he is German. Audi's German. Uh, as Americans, we we might roll our eyes at that and be like, oh, what a what a dumb joke, what a what a sad and sorry excuse. He's probably lying. He just wanted to to do better in the race. He he just couldn't do it, so he hired somebody else to take his place. But at the same time, knowing German culture, like the the pranks and the practical jokes are are kind of a known thing in German culture. There's a TV show. I don't know if it's still running. I know that it it, it used to be. Uh, it's called Verstehensfass, which is like, do you understand the fun? It's a it's basically a prank TV show. It, it used to be on German television. I don't know if it still is. I'd have to look it up. But it was a pretty decently well known prank TV show that went on for for multiple years, and it was not pretty significant, but a notable part of German culture. Um, within the last couple of decades. So it that when when Daniel Epp says, oh, I just meant that as a joke, like I I'm not going to write him off and say he's lying. Like I I wouldn't be surprised if he actually thought like it would be a joke. Like, let's see if they can figure out like I'm going to I'm going to place a lot. My car is going to place a lot higher than normal. Um, let's see if 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 people can figure out that it's not actually me driving. Um, if that's his defense, I'm willing to um, to kind of innocent until proven guilty if you will mm-hmm. um as far as the 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 sacking from audi um i think that goes a little too far to be honest i mean why like why why i mean the, at the very most like there should be some kind of consequence like okay 100 euros or something to charity it should be enough of a consequence so that people don't do it but not such a harsh consequence that it's going to pretty much smear and pretty much ruin his career in the real world you know he deserves a slap on the wrist um but otherwise i think it it should just kind of let bygones be bygones. So I actually read uh, today on uh, Racer Magazine, racer.com, um, their uh, writer, Robin Miller, he wrote a piece called Enough of This Nonsense. And he he really takes aim at, 
especially, you know, this situation with Daniel Apt was kind of the last straw for him. He was kind of like, okay, 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 everybody just calm down. We've been we've been racing in video games for a couple of months. Like, we need to take it easy because this whole sacking of, of Daniel Apt and having having such huge consequences in the the real world because he made a bad choice in the in the virtual world is way too much. And he says this. He says, quote, he was fined 10,000 euros payable as a donation to charity and is out of work because he got somebody else to drive his car in a computer game. Let that soak in for a minute. End quote. So when I read that, I remember I was kind of like, yeah, that yeah, he kind of has a point there. To be honest, like I think Simon Pagano's offense was much worse. I mean, it's one thing for you to try to better yourself and like you're cheating to make yourself go faster. It's another thing to disrupt somebody else's race. You know, 100%. I mean, yeah, 100%. yeah, yeah. So that's that's really my thoughts. They, in short, Audi went too far uh, in in their consequences. I really don't see why they would do that. They didn't. I, I don't. Maybe they gave a reason. If they did, I haven't read it yet or seen it yet. He deserves a slap on the wrist and not much more than that. Yeah, so Audi's response, um, and I quote, uh, integrity, transparency, and consistent compliance with applicable rules are top priorities for Audi. This applies to all activities the brand is involved in without exception. For this reason, Audi Sport has decided to suspend Daniel Abt with immediate effect, end quote. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in agreement. I think Audi, um, Audi went too far. Uh, I, I think that the $10,000 fine uh, to charity and then him issuing an apology was more than enough. I think Simon Paginar got off too easy um, mm-hmm. because he didn't have any, even uh, a fine. I think he should have had a fine. Um, you know, all he did was call Lando and say, you know, and make some excuse about it. Um, so, you know, last time we were talking about an incident in virtual racing, I was all for there being a punishment. Uh, I guess be careful what I wish for, because now with this, I think this is too far. And, you know, he's not the only one who's suffered, uh, from virtual racing. Bubba Wallace, uh, lost one of his sponsors because during one of the NASCAR races, the virtual NASCAR races, he quit mid-event. Uh, he wasn't doing well, so he's like, well, I'm just going to quit. And that uh, upset a sponsor, and the sponsor pulled sponsorship from him. So his action there, again, I think that's probably a little too severe. Um, but at the same time, you know, these people are are, are, are being paid, uh, not necessarily for this race, but they're being sponsored, um, you know, by these people. And these people want, their sponsors want to get their name out there. A lot of people are watching these races, it's, you know, it's good for sponsors. So I think that there should be some penalty for some of these actions, um, but, you know, not not that much. So Kyle Larson, right, a, a driver for Chip Ganassi, um, mm-hmm. he, he got uh, fired by Chip Ganassi mm-hmm. um, during an event. But that was because he used a racial slur <laughs> on his yeah. screen. So, you know, that's that's kind of its own thing. That's just you're being in the public eye, you're representing a brand. So that makes sense. That's totally different. That's kind of... Mm-hmm separate from the game but anyway um you know that being said i I think i I do agree that there should be some punishment when drivers are acting you know not the way they should and him playing a prank it should have maybe cost him money if it's not something he cleared with audi first um Mm -hmm. and uh you know he was breaking the rules and that does kind of put a a bit of a smur on audi um the other theory i read is that audi's been looking for a reason to get rid of him Mm. um so they've been trying to get rid of him as a driver and then this was kind of their open window to do that um honestly that's kind of what i'm believing the most because it seems like an overreaction unless you're using this as an opportunity to 
fire him and bring in somebody else. But yeah, that that's pretty much all I'll say on that. So, um, I mean, I guess I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about basically how how MotoGP is structured and how it came to be over the last 10 years. And I do kind of want to, I mean, I want to know more about kind of the way the car is set up and, and a little bit of the history of the engines and the the tires, uh, like the spec tires and stuff, or the, the, the single manufacturer, I should say, not necessarily spec tires. Like, I, I do want to know a little more history of that. And then I do want to talk about, I don't want to say I want to complain about Formula One, but I do want to put out on the table how I think Formula One can improve itself. As as somebody who is a relatively new fan, I look at Formula One and I and I see like, okay, here's where it's good and here's where it really needs to improve. I have some bias because I'm a MotoGP fan. I see what MotoGP has done to become a lot more competitive, and I I think that that Formula One can learn from MotoGP. Um, I would say start with GP, um, just so I can kind of see, you know, what direction you want to take this and I'll go off of that. MotoGP uh, used to actually be called the 500cc World Championship um, probably like 20 years ago or more. Back when the bikes were two-stroke and they were only 500cc, um, when they moved to four-stroke bikes, they got a lot of a big uh, displacement boost. I think first it was like they, they moved between maybe 880cc, 990cc. Uh, in the early 2000s, and then um, somewhere after that, probably around 2010, um, the engine sizes pretty much stayed the same at 999cc, so basically a 1,000cc motorcycle. Um, all the motorcycles are four-cylinder. Um, however, the the engine configuration, uh, the cylinder firing order, that sort of stuff, is all um, up to the manufacturer, right? And... Um, like Honda, Honda, Ducati, and KTM, and Prilia. Um, hold on, let me back up. Um, so the engine configuration uh, and the firing order of those four cylinders is up to the manufacturer. And currently, I want to say that there are, what, six manufacturers in MotoGP. Uh, you've got Honda, Yamaha, Ducati, those are the, the three biggest players. And then Suzuki is probably the next biggest after that and kind of just kind of nipping at the heels of uh, of Yamaha and Ducati in terms of where they are um, as far as results and, and development of their the machine. Um, next would probably be KTM, uh, which is the Austrian motorcycle manufacturer. They just joined MotoGP in 2017 was their first year. Um, in MotoGP, which is a pretty big deal for them. They're mostly uh, well-known for their dirt bikes and their motocross and, and things like that, a lot of off-road stuff. So to see them at the at the pinnacle of motorcycle road racing is uh, is pretty cool, um, and it, it really shows their commitment to, to racing um, because MotoGP is no not, not an inexpensive uh, endeavor, especially if you're trying to play catch-up with, with behemoths like Honda um, and trying to beat them. So... I, I'm very uh, excited that KTM is there and, and going for it. Um, and then the last manufacturer is Aprilia. Uh, it's another um, it's another Italian manufacturer. They uh, are not an entirely factory team. Um, they are, I think, they are a factory team, but they're kind of more like a factory supported team because the team is not administered by Aprilia. It's a it's run by the Grassini team. Uh, a guy named Fausto Grassini uh, runs the the logistics of the team um, and so forth. It's kind of like 
like Sauber and Alfa Romeo in Formula One or something. Um, they kind of have that that marriage between uh, manufacturer and established private team. So uh, the other factories, however, are full factory efforts. Um, as far as engine configuration goes, um, Aprilia, Honda, KTM, and Ducati use uh, V4 engines. Uh, the benefit of the V4 engine is that it's it's slimmer. Um, it doesn't it it keeps the bike a little more svelte um, and and skinny. Um, it also reduces vibration a little bit. Um, whereas the remaining two manufacturers of Yamaha and Suzuki they use inline fours, so uh, their cylinders are all in in a line. Um, the the um, the advantage of um, the inline four is that they're very very smooth. Um, they are some of the easiest bikes to get used to in MotoGP. So a lot of the rookies really like Suzuki. Well, excuse me. A lot of the rookies really like the inline four bikes, especially the Yamaha. It's said that the Yamaha is the easiest bike to ride on the grid. Um, the disadvantage of the inline four is just the power delivery, um, just the way the mechanics works. The V, the V configuration um, of the the engine is, according to physics, going to be able to generate more power. Um, and so that that can put it at a big disadvantage. Um, the Honda, the current Honda motorcycle, which is called the RC21 3V, it's a, a long, annoying name. Um, that is kind of a, it's a bit of a bucking bronco to ride. Um, you know, it's it's kind of said every once in a while that um, Mark Marquez is kind of the only one who can kind of tame that beast, if you will. Um, it's not a very smooth uh, ride. You really have to wrangle it around. Um, so you kind of trade, trade off power and handling, right. As far as the engine goes. So aside from the factory teams, there are, uh, some other private teams in MotoGP and the, 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 the private teams that are closest to the manufacturers, not so much anymore, but a few years ago, they used to be just referred to as satellite teams, um, that are there they were kind of more like the the junior teams so it wasn't quite like the relationship between Red Bull Racing and Toro Rosso in Formula 1 but it's very similar um like there was the Yamaha factory team and then there was uh Yamaha say Monster Energy Yamaha Tech 3 or Tech 3 because it's a French team so Tech 3 um is a private French team but they get they they've gotten a lot of factory support uh from Yamaha and they were considered the satellite team until they recently switched to uh, KTM. And so now they're kind of the KTM satellite team. They get a lot of factory support. They pretty much have the Toro Rosso livery, um, actually. So it's interesting to see them do that. Um, so then there are other private teams um, that are not as supported. Um, they're kind of kind of the more cash-strapped, um, more shoestring budget teams, um, like uh, Real Aventia is a Spanish team. Um, they are not so much a, a satellite team. They run Ducati machinery. They get some support from Ducati, but not as much as what would be considered the Ducati satellite team, which is Pramac Ducati, um, and it, which is an Italian effort. Um, so um, the interesting thing, and, and this is something I want to I want to know about Formula One is like a lot of times in MotoGP, the some of the private teams or the satellite teams, the you know quote unquote junior teams, they will have maybe even what might be considered factory machinery or a factory bike, right? So 
it's um it's kind of like a it's almost like the factory team can can field a third or a, even a fourth bike um without the financial without shouldering the financial burden um and it kind of benefits everybody that way at least it does in MotoGP, and i'll i'll get into that in a little bit uh, as as far as the advantages of of giving a lot of support to your satellite team because um, it can really pay big dividends as it did for ducati actually uh a few years ago um so yeah the um motor gp is sanctioned by the fim federation internationale de motociclisme um, just like fia in um in auto racing and then the commercial rights holder for television and so forth is called uh, um dorna which would be kind of like Bernie Ecclestone or I think Liberty Media is is the operator of Formula One now. Um, so they're kind of the equivalent. Dorna's held the reins of MotoGP for going on 20 years now in that ballpark range. So they've been at it for quite a few decades. And, and to be honest, they seem to be doing well with it. They seem to really kind of know what they're doing, um, understanding everybody involved uh, from the racetracks to the sanctioning body to the the riders and the teams and the the fans the consumer so um you know plus the the tele the way television broadcasting contracts and stuff go so they've got a pretty good handle on it um at least it, it seems so in my opinion um i mean MotoGP has really grown and thrived under their their stewardship so that's pretty cool um i like to see that um so um as far as the actual riders go um the main guy in MotoGP right now is mark marquez he has won i'll say like five of the last six championships thereabouts um or six of the last seven championships i don't know since 2013 he's won every championship except one in 2015 um so he's definitely the biggest name top dog in MotoGP right now rides for honda repsol honda and um and yeah like he's showing no signs of of slowing down and um in a way, like just for a quick understanding, he is kind of the Lewis Hamilton of MotoGP. You know, he's got so much um, support as far as the factory goes and um, as far as his team goes. So, yeah, he's kind of the top dog. Actually, they're uh, then the next, I guess, top dog. And in some ways, he's the, the topper dog, of course, is Valentino Rossi. He's been in the Grand Prix paddock for like 25 years, uh, since 95, 96, thereabouts. Um, so he's like going on, he's 40, somewhere between 40 and 43. Um, so he's he's getting up there in age. He's def- easily the oldest guy, uh, oldest racer on the grid. Um, but he has just had an incredible career that's spanned, that's touched on three going on four decades at this point. Um, you know, he's he's known the world over. Um, people who barely know anything about motorcycle racing, they know the name Valentino Rossi. So that tells you the kind of effect that he's had. I mean, if you're listening and you're you're into cars and car racing and you know nothing about MotoGP, like you probably know the name Valentino Rossi. Um, so he hasn't won a championship since 2009. Um, so he's had a, a rough decade, but he still remains uh, a lot of times in the... The top five in races um, has been getting podiums every year for quite a while, a few wins. Um, but yeah, he really hasn't quite—he he hasn't quite enjoyed the uh, the dominance that he did in the 
the early 2000s. Um, teams or was it, was it a new? Did he switch teams or was it a new competitor? Yeah, so he has been on three different teams, uh, at least factory teams. He's been on factory Honda. That was in the early 2000s, and then he switched to Yamaha, and he was with Yamaha from like t- like. 203 until 2010 2011-ish um so he was with Yamaha for a number of years that's kind of who he's most famous for riding with um he's been with them the most uh he was with Ducati for a few years which was kind of the dream team it was like oh man the uh the Italian rider on the Italian bike but that was actually kind of a flop I think he got like one or two podiums during the the few years that he was there uh, Yamaha welcomed him back in with open arms in 2013, and um, he's been with them ever since. So um, are all of his champion are all of his championships with Yamaha? No, he had one with Honda. Oh, okay. I think I think I don't think he had more than one with Honda, at least in the Premier class, in the GP he, class. Yeah, he's sounding to me to relate this to Formula One a little like Sebastian Vettel, who you know won four championships in a row in a row with Red Bull. And eventually went to Ferrari and hasn't won a championship since going to Ferrari. So that's mm-hmm. why I was wondering if he had switched around 2010 or 2009 and then hasn't been able to make it up since. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think his the level of fame that he has though would probably put him a little more on the on the level of Schumacher at least. Um, I think as far as like fame and 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 being that well known and for 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 a long time and on different kinds of machinery. Mm-hmm. Um, but um but yeah like you could make that comparison with with Sebastian Vettel um so another uh let's see who else is man actually a couple of guys who've retired recently who were considered you know one of the group of quote unquote aliens um who were just part of this this dominant uh group of guys who were uh winning all the races and getting all the podiums and stuff um Jorge Lorenzo um he has he he's had an interesting career um I like watching him race. Um, he struggled in the uh, the public per, with the the public perception, or the at least the the fan perception for a few years. He seemed a little bit um, I don't know, like his style was a little little poserish sometimes. Didn't always seem genuine. Um, he wasn't super charismatic, but um, he's he matured a lot, um, especially in especially after twenty. 14 he matured a lot and um i think rounded out his MotoGP career um pretty well so um jorge lorenzo is a spanish rider he joined MotoGP in 2008 um won three championships uh, in, in 2010 2012 and 2015 um and he's actually ridden for three manufacturers even though his championships were all with um with yamaha um he rode for ducati for a couple of years um which was like his second year with Ducati was really cool actually because his first year with Ducati he struggled a lot and people were kind of grumbling a lot about it and just it was just not not as good as as everybody had hoped uh, as far as like the team the manufacturer and and Lorenzo himself so um, interestingly pretty much the I would think it was like the week in 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 Lorenzo's second year with Ducati uh, the week after it was announced that Ducati were not uh, going to resign. Lorenzo, um, he goes out and wins the the Grand Prix and Grand Prix of Catalonia, um, which uh, you know that track is is very famous. It's a very good track. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people know it well um, and do really well on it. And and for him to go out and just 
beat Mark Marquez uh, on his home turf in Catalonia was 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 pretty cool to see, and it was interesting um, to see him. An interesting psychological thing that he um, that he like once you know the question is like oh once he was relieved of that pressure did he perform better now that he knew that like his his days at Ducati were numbered he just kind of like went well screw it I'm just gonna give everything I got and just not care and just go for it um, so he won Catalunya he won um, Mugello the Italian Grand Prix like a week or two after that. And it was like, I wouldn't quite say it was like a really big jaw dropping moment. But, you know, for me, as somebody who has has liked Jorge Lorenzo's style and, um, you know, I, I was very excited to see that. And I was like, hmm, shutting the haters up, you know, like he's just straight up beating Mark Marquez um, on like the perfect day, um, like sunshiny day. Um, you know, no, pro- no mechanical failures for Mark Marquez. Um, you know, Lorenzo's just straight up beating him at some of the, the, the most difficult tracks in the world, uh, Catalonia and Mugello. And then I think Lorenzo won one more time in Austria, um, at the Red Bull ring. And then unfortunately he had, he, he crashed and had some injuries that hindered him the rest of the season because, um, that would have been cool to see him finish out the season really strong because, all of a sudden, he was a title contender with Mark Marquez on the Ducati after basically knowing that he was going to be fired from Ducati um, at the end of the season and not re-signed. So after that, he went to, to Repsol Honda, um, had a pretty miserable couple of years. And then last year, I think he broke his back, uh, had some more injuries. And then it was just like, you know what? I think it's time for me to retire. So he did that. And um, so, yeah, um, before him... There was Danny Pedrosa. He retired a couple years ago. Now he's a test rider for KTM. Um, who's a guy I can compare? You know, Danny Pedrosa, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. He's never won a world championship, come in second multiple times. Um, only only race with one manufacturer in the premier class. That's Repsol Honda. Um, man. Botas, can, maybe? Nah. Now, Botas isn't as good in Formula One as, as Pedrosa was in, in MotoGP. I mean, yeah. Pedrosa's a, a legend, more or less, in, in MotoGP. But um, never won a championship. Right, but never won a championship. So I don't know who to compare him to. to, Maybe to Max, I mean, Max Verstappen, I wouldn't quite call a legend, but he's definitely a crowd favorite, and he's been racing for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, he hasn't won a championship. Red Bull is kind of making it their, seems to be making it their mission to make him the youngest championship winner. Um, so that might be a, a close one, but again, he's still too young, I would say, to be considered a legend. And right, way. right. If Max Verstappen comes in second for a few years and then retires when he's like 30, then I could see the comparison a little more because that's when Danny Pedrosa retired in his 30s after being mm-hmm. in the paddock for 12 years or so. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know off the top of my head if there's a if there's a an analog in Formula One. Um. So Danny Pedrosa, um, great career, great guy. Uh, he's a test rider for KTM now. And um, so before him, the last like more notable alien who was actually only in in MotoGP for like six or seven seasons was Casey Stoner, Australian uh, rider, rode for Ducati, won them I think their first Premier Class Championship maybe ever, but don't quote me on that. Um, in 2007. Um, yeah, straight up beat Rossi. Um, after a few years at Ducati, he switched over to Repsol Honda, straight up beat Jorge Lorenzo in 2011. Um, came very close to winning another championship in 2012. Again, unfortunately, some injuries happened. 
um, but he decided to retire. He just wanted to uh, move on with his life, and people miss him a lot having him in the uh, in the paddock. But um, but yeah, Marquez, Rossi, Lorenzo, Pedrosa, and Casey Stoner. Those are the aliens. I hope I'm not forgetting somebody. Am I forgetting anybody? No, I don't think so. Um, some of the the more like up and coming riders um, are Fabio Quattararo. Um, he's a Frenchman uh, who has had a very interesting career. Won't get into it too much right now, um, but he 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 was slated to be like this this prodigy. He came in uh, when he was very young to uh, Moto3, um, didn't really perform very well, and then just a couple years ago got into a really good Moto2 team and just took off. Like his career just took off, and now. Um, this past season, he rode for Petronas Yamaha, which is a, uh, a satellite team. Since Tectois changed from Yamaha to KTM, uh, Petronas Yamaha kind of took up the uh, the mantle for Yamaha and became their satellite team. Um, they are uh, that's a Malaysian team actually, um, basically representing the Sepang International Circuit in Malaysia, and they have tons of money because they are sponsored by Petronas. And um, yeah, so they get factory equipment and Fabio did fantastic last year um especially in qualifying he got on pole multiple times uh beat the factory yamaha riders beat mark marquez it was so much fun to see um actually at malaysia i think one of the one of the most like mic drop moments for fabio quadraro is in malaysia during qualifying um mark marquez basically tries to follow him during a fast lap and mark marquez ends up crashing while Fabio, you know, takes the pole lap. So it was like, you know, Mark Marquez couldn't, it wasn't even that he couldn't keep up. It's like he crashed while trying to keep up with Fabio. So it was pre- that was pretty cool to see. Um, definitely a, a mic drop moment for him. Um, Maverick Vinales is a factory Yamaha rider next to Valentino Rossi. Um, did, did pretty well when he first was in the factory Yamaha seat, but uh, hasn't really had the, the career that he's or the the time at Yamaha that he's wanted he's won races gets on podiums but everybody thought he would challenge Marquez when he came in and he really hasn't done that um Suzuki rider um Alex Rins probably I, I root for him pretty regularly uh he's one of my favorite MotoGP riders um he's on a Suzuki which is not not that uh high up there as far as machinery goes and in Formula One it would probably be like probably be mclaren maybe red bull somewhere in there so and then on the uh, ducati squad a guy who's been around for a while is andrea davizioso great rider um great personality has won multiple races again has been a bridesmaid several times never a bride never won a world championship um he's he's not quite at the alien level um even though he has done very very well with ducati the last few years there's a on red bull tv there's a good um there's a really good documentary. I think it's called Undaunted. It's a one-hour documentary on Andrea Davizioso's career with Ducati, and it's good. Uh, Red Bull TV, check it out for for free. What's been the story for the last ten years of, of Formula One? Yeah, so Formula One, it's it's ten teams, two drivers each team. Um, you know, there's backup reserve drivers, there's test drivers as well, but uh, typically there's two two main drivers for each team. Um, the team that's that's been dominating uh, with Lewis Hamilton as, as the pilot and also just winning the constructors championship has been Mercedes. Um, so it's Lewis Hamilton and um, uh, Valtteri Bottas. <clears throat> excuse me, are the two uh, two drivers there? Both have come in one and two in 2019, and they've just been just been dominating. Um, so I you know 
Uh, as you mentioned before, you know, how good of a driver is Botas? You know, it's it's tough to tell. Is it just the car? You know, tough to tell. Um, but, you know, right now that's that's what's happening there. Um, going down a little bit, uh, Ferrari, who's generally been, you know, a, a big winner, especially when they had Michael Schumacher as their driver, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Wow, maybe more than that. Um uh, you know, Ferrari was a dominant team for a long time and, and in a lot of motorsports, you know, in Le Mans and everything, Ferrari is just a big household name. They've been slipping back a little bit in the ranks. They've been typically a one and two team and they're kind of, you know, a two and three team. And, uh, you know, they might even be slipping a little bit further from there. So, you know, still remains to be seen. Um, and then Red Bull Racing is, I would say, the other top contender uh, with Max Verstappen and uh, now Alex Alaban. Uh, Red Bull Racing also has a junior team. Um, which was called uh, Toro Rosso, which of course means Red Bull. Uh, but then this year they switched it to their new clothing line called Alpha Tori. Um, you know, Tori coming from Taurus meaning bull. Um, so Alpha Tori is their junior team, uh, just rebranded, um, who's driven with uh, Danny Kia and um, uh, Pierre Gasly. Pierre Gasly got a shot at the Red Bull, the main Red Bull team last year. I uh, started the season um, driving for them, ended up uh, uh, not doing as well as Christian Horner, the team principal, wanted. Um, so they ended up swapping him out for Albon. They're really like the only team, I would say, that can really do something like that um, because they have that junior team. So they have the ability to, to do that with two teams of, of just swap the drivers uh, as needed. So they put Albon in there as kind of an audition for the second half. And uh, going into 2020, um, Alaban was going to be the driver, um, you know, if we actually had races. <laughs> uh, then you have what's called the midfield battles. Um, so those those are the three teams always competing for for the win. Um, and then the midfield would be things like McLaren uh, with Carlos Sainz and Lando Norris, although that's changed because um, uh, Sainz has now moved up to Ferrari. Uh, so Ferrari was Vettel and Leclerc. Vettel is now a free agent and uh, Vettel's seat has been given to Carlos Sainz. So Carlos Sainz jumped up for McLaren. That's going to start in 2021. Uh, but for now, in 2020, uh, Sainz was uh, McLaren and Lando Norris was McLaren and is still going to be McLaren as far as we know going forward. Um, another midfield team would be Renault, um, the, the French team. Uh, so that's that was Danny Ricardo and uh, Ocon. And uh, now Danny Ricardo has jumped up and taken the McLaren seat. Um, and then from there, another, you know, kind of mid-pack runner would be probably um, Alfa Romeo Racing, I would say, is another one. So they have Kimi Raikkonen, who Kimi Raikkonen's won a world championship, uh, and he's now in a midfield team. He dropped down from Ferrari a couple of years ago, where he was actually he was doing okay as Ferrari, you know, a number two driver with Vettel as, as the number one. Um, but you know, he ended up dropping down. He's the oldest driver on the grid. He's probably a few years away from retiring. And then uh, Giovinazzi is um, is the the other driver that uh, that races for Alfa Romeo Racing. Um, from there, it goes to you know. It's a toss-up on, on who I would say is the next place. Um, it's uh, you know it's basically Haas with uh, Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen. I would say actually probably not Haas. It's probably more um, Racing Point, which has had a lot of names. They're the pink car, so they were Force India for a while, and then that company got um, you know caught with I think some corruption or something like that mid-season. Um, so then they were bought um, and uh, you know became uh, Racing Point. They were bought by Lance Stroll, who's a driver for them, is bought by their father Lawrence Stroll. Um, uh, you know, Canadian uh, fashion mogul. Uh, so now Lance Stroll is driving for a racing point and Sergio Perez is the other racing point driver with a pink car. 
Um, Alpha Tori, we talked about them. That's the junior team. So they're also kind of in that lower mid pack running. Um, and then, uh, then I would say Haas is probably would be the next one in line. And then uh, last place is consistently Williams um, with George Russell and uh, Nicholas Latifi is in his first season. Um, uh, was going to be his first season in 2020. So, uh, you know, it's funny because Russell, George Russell is, it was a, a, an amazing driver, um, in the, you know, the junior formula series and, um, then got, you know, got the chance to move up to formula one, which is everyone's dream. Unfortunately, you're, you're moved up to a team that's, you know, lapped only a few laps in, uh, because they're significantly slower than everyone else. And, um, but Williams has been, you know, a, a, a famous name and, and Aaron Senna drove for them in his final year. Um, you know, it was the, the Elf Rothman's Williams car. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, so Williams is, is hardly a, uh, they have a lot of prestige to them, but right now they're just doing awful. And the person running Williams is the daughter to Sir Williams. Um, so she's got, you know, a lot of, a lot of pressure on her shoulder and I would not want to be in her position to just be in a team that year after year is just not able to put a car together. Um, that's at all competitive. So, um, George Russell, I know is in close, uh, talks with, um, uh, Toto, um, who's the uh, Mercedes principal. So, you know, the chance of seeing Russell in a Mercedes car at some point in the future, I think is pretty likely. Um, that's kind of been the, the talk that we've had, you know, that we've been hearing for a while. Uh, but we'll see, you know, still remains to be seen. Um, so that's kind of a rundown of the teams. Again, two drivers for each team. Um, the movement going on, we've kind of talked about this in the last one, but, you know, Vettel, uh, his deal with Ferrari fell apart. So he left Ferrari and hasn't yet claimed a seat. Uh, his open seat, as I said, went to Carlos Sainz, who left McLaren. Danny Ricardo left Renault to jump into McLaren. So right now there's one open seat with Renault and one open driver. Oh, there's multiple open drivers, but uh, one open driver from this current season, and that's going to be Vettel. Uh, so who knows what will happen with that? You know, there's, we, we talked about the what, what could happen from there. Um, you know, a little bit about the cars themselves. Um, since 2000, and I'm going to get this date wrong. I want to say like 14. Uh, they switched over from V8s, normally aspirated V8s, and they went turbo. And part of what Formula One's been trying to do with their engines is they've been trying to keep in mind fuel conscientiousness and where, you know, the where the where the world's going with being environmentally conscious more and more. Um, so they wanted to embrace turbos and as they embrace turbos, manufacturers embrace turbos and therefore that development ultimately makes it to the cars that you and I drive. Right. So they've been embracing turbos more and more. And there's, you know, I mentioned before Vettel's quote of saying, bring back the V8s because, uh, uh, you know, a lot of drivers and a lot of fans are just have not fallen in love with the turbos and they don't sound nearly as cool as the old v10s or v12s or v8s even um and uh you know they've just been they've been having a lot of problems so it kind of comes down to a lot of cars have been dropping out uh they run at lower rpms i think it's only 15,000 compared to 18,000 um but you know a turbo adds a lot to the mix as well uh more on the power plant they also have you know energy systems um so it used to be called curs uh, which was kinetic energy recirculation system or something like that um and then uh they've now added um you know uh, a k uh what do they call it um uh mug and muk now oh wait, hold on i forget what they're called but basically it's so it's now split into two um separate uh units and one basically takes the heat uh it's the the mguh 
uh, takes the heat from the brakes uh, and the engine and everything. And it actually can actually store that because heat is energy, right? So it can store that energy into a battery. And then it also takes kinetic energy. So things like the, the suspension and, and movement like that in the car, it could it could take that energy and store it into another battery and then it gives the driver the ability to uh to pull out some extra horsepower when they need it um, so if you ever see the lights flashing on the back of a car um, you know they flash in the rain but if they're flashing in the dry that typically means um that the car is recharging um, so you'll see that too on a lot of formula one cars so you could tell mm-hmm. if the cars on power or off power and drivers can actually use that to know um you know if somebody's got enough power if they can pass them and things like that so um you know, it's a nice telltale sign for the car too, but uh, or for the drivers too uh, to see about the car. Um, you know, aerodynamics is a big part of Formula One. Um, you know, there's been a lot of rules on aerodynamics, and a lot of people trying to bend the rules over the years. Things like X wings. If you see these big wings that they put off like the side of cars, that was a a thing that they ended up banning and didn't allow. And and uh, they used to do this this uh, you know side skirts that the the John Player special car came out with. You know back in what was that the 70s or the 80s? It came out with that, and um, uh, you know it, it ended up being banned. And then they tried different things. So aerodynamics is is where I think is where the teams really try to get their edge um, because there's only so much they could do with the engines, um, but the aerodynamics they really have, and and you know how they also do the suspension, and everything they have a lot of um, a lot of ability there, and they can change it. You know sometimes they'll run a little bit more aero for some tracks and a little less for others. Um, for example, Monaco, very tight track, not a lot of straights. You know you're gonna run it, uh, you're gonna run a car with a lot of aero because you want to have a grippy car that doesn't necessarily have to be fast in a straight line versus something like, um, you know, pretty much uh, Baku, for example. Baku's got a lot of long straights or it's got that really long front straight. Um, so there's different, uh, you know, there's different strategies there that they can start to implement. Um, you know, we talked about traction control in the past and, and how mm-hmm. that plays into effect. So traction control was something that was banned back in 1994 uh, which was the season that um had a had like three deaths um you know or three big crashes on that one race uh and two deaths and that was um you know the one of the deaths being aired in senna uh, that we talked about in the past so um traction control has been a little bit of a debate back in the 90s they ended up banning it in 94 and the reason being is they wanted they wanted it to be more about the drivers right they don't want the, the drivers to be able to just floor it through a corner and let the car do the work um mm-hmm. They wanted the drivers to be able to, to show what they can do and, and be more technical. Uh, but with the cars getting faster and getting a little more wild um, with some of the other restrictions, you know, Ayrton Senna was saying, look, this is a little too dangerous. Getting rid of traction control, there's going to be a lot of crashes. And sure enough, there definitely was that season. Uh, but they stuck with it and they kept them banned. Now, what car, what manufacturers tried to do is they said, all right, well, I'm just going to find a way around it, right? You know, a lot of F1 is trying to, to maximize what you can and still being within the rules. So they found a lot of workarounds. So because of that, they ended up allowing traction control to come back, I think, in the early 2000s. And then I want to say in like 2008, they ended up banning it again. Um, because what they did was they they introduced the same ECU for every car. So the FIA provides the ECUs for the cars. Mm-hmm. Um, even I think it was last year, um, they thought that uh, Max Verstappen had traction control because he nailed a corner in Monza and uh, came up over there, and you see the wheel had power cut to it. And then as he hit the ground again, he had he had power. Um, so you know they were like, oh, he has traction control because it's cutting power, so the wheel didn't spin. But they looked into it and it was really more of like a red line. You know, if the wheel was spinning freely, the ECU kicked in so it doesn't damage the engine and cut power to mm-hmm. it. So it more of a safety mm-hmm. thing. So, you know, yeah. 
with, with with the ECU being provided by the FIA, this traction control has been uh, has been something that they've been able to eliminate and say, you know, there's not really a workaround if you don't have control over the ECU uh, in order to build in some kind of traction control system. So uh, it's been banned. It's been banned since 2008. Uh, you know, and I like that. I think the cars are not very easy to drive, um, but they shouldn't be. You know, you're getting paid millions and millions of dollars um, to drive this car and to do it well. Um, you know, and if you won't do it, then somebody else will. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm more than happy with the cars not having traction control. I don't necessarily care how fast they're going. I just care, you know, that it's the driver doing it. And I think, uh, a lot of formula one fans would probably agree with that. Um, cause it was, uh, it was kind of a crowd pleaser in order to cut the traction control. Um, hmm. is, uh, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the take on that. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh I would say just kind of talking about the drivers and, and what to expect. Um, you know, Hamilton's won six races. Um, so he's coming after Schumacher's record. Uh, so he, or, I'm sorry, not six races, six world championships. You shouldn't just call them races. Uh, so he's trying to beat, uh, Schumacher's record of, uh, you know, most wins. Um, and, uh, which, you know, was looking likely for two, uh, for 2020. Uh, but now, you know, with the season being totally up in the air, who knows what's going on now. But, uh, you know, he's been the dominant driver for the past few years. Mercedes has been the dominant car uh, for a while. And, um, you know, even if we look back at uh, recent previous winners, um, you know, a lot of them were in a Mercedes or a Mercedes powered car. Um, you know, Lewis Hamilton winning the last three, but then Nico Rosberg uh, was world champion in 2016, but he was he was in a Mercedes. Um, and then you have to go back to 2013 uh, to have a non Mercedes winner. And that was Red Bull. Um, and that was Sebastian Vettel. So I, I mentioned this before, Sebastian Vettel, he won 2010, 11, 12 and 13 um, with the Renault powered Red Bull car. Um, and then, you know, switch to Ferrari because Ferrari's everyone wants to drive for Ferrari. He hasn't won a world championship since Ferrari. Um, so it's kind of been, you know, a, a poor move for him. And then if you go back even before him, um, Jensen Button won in 09 with Braun, which was a Mercedes car uh, and ended up becoming you know, the Mercedes car. And then Lewis Hamilton won his first championship in 2008 uh, with a McLaren Mercedes car. So Mercedes powered engine McLaren car, which we're actually going to see the return of in 2021 because um, McLaren is now going to be using Mercedes engines. Um so that's going to be, I think, pretty cool. Uh, I'm actually, I'm rooting for McLaren um, this upcoming, in 2021. Mm. McLaren's my team. I think uh, Danny Ricardo and, and Lando Norris are going to both be driving for them. They have, I think, the two biggest personalities on the track. Um, and then, you know, McLaren's going back to a Mercedes engine. Um, they've won a world championship with that setup in the past. Um, they've mm. been kind of up and coming as, you know, emerging out of the middle pack and, and starting to contest, you know, um, Carlos Sainz, who's now driving for Ferrari, but when he was with McLaren, you know, he put on fifth place a few times. Um, so he's, uh, you know, uh, the, the car was there and he's also a good driver. So I think that, uh, you know, they've lost him as a driver, but they still have two very capable drivers with an increasingly capable car. Um, yeah. so I'm looking forward to McLaren. Um, the other big thing to look out for in 2021 is uh, a big... I don't want to say debate, but a big um, a big thing that the FIA has been trying to do, um, which half the teams are all for, half the teams are against, is they don't they want to get rid of having this one dominant team or these couple of dominant teams and then having teams like Williams fall so far behind. So they're starting to limit uh, budgets on people uh, or on teams on what you can spend, uh, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so tough to regulate something like that. 
Right. Um, but you're going to have, you know, if if teams in a perfect world, teams are following what the budgets are. You know, the goal is if you have less of a budget, you can't build as good of a car. Right. It's kind of, you know, capitalism one on one. Right. So with that being said, um, you know, they're trying to even the playing field as much as possible. And another thing we're seeing is aerodynamics are changing. Um, so right now, if you're behind um you know, if you're behind a car, it really disrupts you going into a corner. So if you have a lot of aerodynamics and let's rewind, if you think of drafting a car, you think, mm-hmm. good, I'm behind the car, they're cutting up the air. I'm going to be able to to go with less drag and pass them. And that's true to an extent. But if you're going to be following a car that closely and then go through a corner, yeah, they're breaking the air up. So you have less drag, but you also have less downforce. You have less air passing cleanly over your front wing. Um, mm-hmm. You end up getting a lot of understeer with the car, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, I think it was Charles Leclerc had an incident earlier this year, which and that's exactly what it was. He was following somebody close behind. Um, there, there was a car that was on his outside, but because he was, you know, a car was trying to pass him on the outside, he was right behind another car that he was, you know, trying to stick with. And because he didn't have the grip going into the corner, you can see the car just kind of wash out and, and he didn't really have any control over it. And I can't remember if he if they touched or if he just knocked the other guy off the track or whatever it was. But uh, I just remember that being something I was watching. Um, you know, so they're, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to limit how the car creates uh, turbulence behind it. So they're trying mm-hmm. to limit that because they don't want to see that as much um, going forward. So the cars are, are looking very different. And they're all redesigned. And, and that's really kind of the design that they've had in mind um, and what they're talking about. So I'm excited for the 2021 season. I think there's going to be some big changes. Um, you know, I like some of the changes on the surface, but we'll see what it ultimately turns out to be. Uh, I like um, some of the drivers and the teams around. I like seeing Carlos signs in Ferrari. Um, never always been a Vettel fan, so whether he gets a seat or not, I'm kind of indifferent. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen's, you know, might still be driving, which is pretty cool because uh, you know Kimi's a cool guy. I like Kimi, even though he's he's just been a mid-pack runner lately. Um, but uh, you know, at the same time, it'd be nicer to see somebody who's, who's a little more aggressive than Kimi now because Kimi's so laid back about everything. He doesn't seem to even fight for a corner anymore. So anyway, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's my 101 on Formula One. All right, Formula One. Formula One. You're talking about Formula One and MotoGP. Um, yeah, when you mentioned uh, Vettel winning with Red Bull, I realized that Mark Webber is probably the uh, analog for Danny Pedrosa. Um, like okay. pretty well, like well known. Mark Webber's a well known driver, um, yeah. but just kind of has come up short in the the Formula One World Championship a few times. Um, Did you see the video on Red Bull TV with Mark Webber and? Uh, was it Mark Marquez and uh, some some other uh, a couple other MotoGP drivers? Mm-hmm. But they were at Red Bull's track in Austria, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mark Weber was teaching them how to drive Formula One cars. And it was okay. it, it was it's called something like it's it's super uh, relevant to what we're talking about because it's called something like you know four wheels to two wheel or two wheels to four wheels or something like that at Red Bull okay. TV. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's like 20 minutes long. It's really short, but uh, he puts them in a Toro Rosso car and, and coaches them on how to drive uh, and they actually do like really, really well. Uh, I can't remember the name of the driver who's doing really well, but you know, give it a watch. It's pretty cool. Okay. I'll have to check it out. And um, yeah, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I feel like it's, it's easier to go from being a MotoGP driver or rider to a Formula One driver than it would be to go from Formula One driver to MotoGP rider. Um, mostly just because there's so much, so many little things that are, that, 
that a rider's body is doing. Um, like body part at the right place at the right time on the bike when you're in this part of the corner versus that. There's a lot. There's just a lot more going on on the bike um, yeah. than in the car. Think, I also think it's harder to go from a, a really nice fast car to a slow car. Right. If you're used to this, yes. um, you know, if, if you're in a Formula One car and, and you have to go faster in order to have more grip around the corner. Right. Like the faster you go, the more grip you have, mm-hmm. um, you know, so doing something like that and then going to, let's say, like a, a, a TCR, like Honda Civic car yeah. series, um, you know, it's going to be tough to get that car under control. Uh, people usually think it's the opposite. You go from a slow car to a fast car. It's got to be tough. But, uh, you know, the fast car is going to drive better. It's going to drive nicer. Um, right. So you'll be going slow until you get comfortable with the speed versus going in too fast and too hard. And then, you know, you can't really correct it from there. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I have some questions about uh, Formula One. I'm just curious about it. We already talked about the engines, how they're they're like a, I mean, are they still like a V something? No, they're V6s now, right? Yeah, V6 turbos. Tur- turbo V6. 700, 850 horse, somewhere in that in that range. Okay. They don't spit um, out. They used to tell you the horsepowers. Uh, I think they stopped doing that like in the 90s. Okay. Um, when when did the like uh, single manufacturer tire thing start? Pirelli, like the Pirelli oh, tires. Yeah, so good question. So um, if you go back to 2000 and uh, 2005, so the U.S. Grand Prix in 2005 was kind of the catalyst that brought this one tire manufacturer about. So in 2005, they were racing in the United States um, and they used to use the Indianapolis road course. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's got like one banked turn um, that you use and then you use the infield on it. But um, so what happened in that race in 2005 is during practice, um, the uh, I got to get this right. The um, Michelin tires. Yeah. So it was the Michelin tires is Bridgestone and Michelin were the two tire choices that you had. And the Michelin tires started failing. And when they looked into it, they found out, okay, you can't do that banked corner with these tires for more than 10 laps. Otherwise, mm-hmm. the tire will explode. And that was happening. You were having these like crazy tire failures. Mm-hmm. So wow. because of that, going into the race, the FIA banned any team that was using Michelin tires from racing that race. Whoa. Even though they could, in theory, change tires prior to 10 laps? Yes. Huh. So okay. they, they said this is unsafe. So you ended up having six cars out of a usual 20-something cars. Mm-hmm. You had six cars, or you know, 20 exactly cars. So 14 drivers got disqualified. Wow. Six, and six teams went. Uh, it was Ferrari, uh, Jordan, and Minardi um, were, the, were the teams that raced. So you had Ferrari, right, a, a typical front runner. And then you had mm-hmm. two teams that basically never saw above 10th place, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so they scored their best rounds ever on that race because right. they had like, no competition. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so because of the tire choice that they made, they ended up getting disqualified. So shortly after, I think it was the following year, maybe two years after, they um, they said, nope, we're only using one tire brand that we're going to offer. And I think they probably went with Bridgestone. Um, but uh, now it's it's Pirelli. I think it's been Pirelli since I don't know, at least 2010, if not earlier. Um, mm-hmm. But it's been Pirelli for a while. So yeah, good question. And that's that's kind of what ultimately led to that um, was the the Indy Grand Prix. And then F1 doesn't race there anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Now the United States Grand Prix is at COTA, Circuit of the Americas, uh, which is a fairly new track in Austin, Texas. Uh, they also used to race at Watkins Glen in the past and whatnot. So I'm glad I'm glad that they race close by to us in Montreal. Um, I would love to go see that within the next few years. Um, 
Otherwise, yeah, Coda is a great facility. Terrible track. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, like, the... It's just I I heard a great description of it once. Um, it's like a it's like a jazz soloist who's trying too hard to like impress the audience. Um, I mean it's it's pretty bad for motorcycle racing and I like for yeah for like competitive racing it just produces processional uh, motorcycle racing and I mean it's probably a little bit better for cars but for motorcycles it's just it's a it's a Herman Tilka track and Tilka tracks are just not very not designed very well and they all kind of look the same. Uh, yeah. But anyway, that particular track, I think they tried to it's it's one of these Frankenstein tracks is what mm-hmm. I call it, where they take different uh, corners from other tracks and try to replicate them. So when you have those you know increasingly sharp S's after turn one, um, that's supposed to be like Silverstone or Silverstone mm-hmm. when you have those S's, um, yeah. you know. And then that first hairpin turn, I guess it's supposed to be like Hockenheim ring is what I read, but it's the wrong direction. Um, so, uh, you know, and there's also another complex there that's from, um, I'm forgetting what track, but uh, anyway, so it's supposed to be different, made up of different pieces from other tracks. Yeah, that's um, a bad track philosophy. Yeah, I can't yeah, imagine drivers like it. Like those S's are just, you can't really pass there and the curbs are aggressive and we saw, you know, Vettel blew up his uh, suspension there. Um, you know, in 2019, he just hit the curb too hard and went flying off the track. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, but you know, stay off the curbs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. A, a track does best when it's designed and it's, it's, yeah. When it's designed to complement the natural topography and not, yeah, if you're making a, a Franken Frankendrome, a Franken circuit, then that's just a bad way to go because you're just gonna end up putting you're you're gonna try to fit a, a square peg into a round hole, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the support classes for Formula One? There's Formula Two and Formula Three, right? Mm-hmm. And then what what's up with that, and what's the difference between like F2, F3, and like GP2, GP3? What what happened there? I honestly, I don't know that well enough to talk about it. <laughs> oh, okay. That's fine. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, we talk about the spec tires. I mean, not spec tires, the single manufacturer, I keep, I should say. Um, like for MotoGP, it's the same same thing. Um, right now, they're Michelins, but they, they were Bridgestones when they implemented the single manufacturer. But that was more for economic reasons, I think. Um, like in two, like after 2008, um, they just wanted to just to keep keep the uh, the variables down, costs lower for the teams. And um, I mean, there there's always like the rumor of back back when there was like a proper tire war. The what is it like the Saturday? Did they call it the Saturday night special? I don't know. Where basically like the the more well known rider would get like extra special tires for the race day, and the other Michelin riders wouldn't so supposedly the the single manufacturer was trying to avoid um special treatment um by the tire manufacturers um for certain you know for uh certain riders um in formula one does a driver take their pit crew with them when they change teams so like will daniel ricardo take his pit crew with him when he goes to mclaren no he wouldn't okay the teams are trained by by the teams right so ferrari mm-hmm. 
their pit crew drivers. Um, you know, they they work for whoever the driver is. Um, there's not really there's not a lot of involvement with driver and um, and crew. I mean, you know, they come in, they they swap out the tires, they maybe change the front wing. Um, you know, they they white, you know, maybe rip off a, a face shield or something like that. But you know, that's that's about it. Um, the, there's very little interaction. Who who does a driver process? data with then yeah so there's there's a uh i I, i'm trying to think of the title of that person what you would call him like a crew chief or something like that um but yeah race engineer though right race engineer yeah race engineer so a race engineer um they they don't follow the drivers they they just stick with the teams because okay um yeah the the race engineer is not employed by the driver they're employed by the team the team trains them the team you know recruits them hires them does all that so um you know they don't just follow the driver uh, maybe maybe there's a contract in place for a, a few people where he says no if you're taking me you got to take the driver too or the the engineer too um hmm. so i'm sure that probably happens but uh i want to okay. standard yeah I, it's interesting because in MotoGP, it's pretty common for the the crew chief to be associated with the rider rather than the team um, so like if a, if a rider moves, they they especially like a top rider, they will take their crew chief with them. Um, and a lot of times, uh, ideally, like the the crew chief uh, has been with the rider for a long time. Like Santi Hernandez is the crew chief for Mark Marquez, and he's been the crew chief for him since before he was even in MotoGP. So part of why of of Marquez's formula for success is he's just had the same crew around him for years and years and years and years and they all know each other so well um and they they are so tight and close and like the trust level is so high um and the communication is so good that that's that's part of why they do well as a team is because of the because Mark Marquez has had the same crew or at the very least the same crew chief for all of those years and um I think a lot of times, I mean, I don't know to what extent the mechanics actually, um, the mechanics are like the, the race engineers or like the suspension engineers or technicians. I don't know what, to what extent they follow a rider, but for sure, like crew chiefs following a rider is very, very common. And it's very, it's actually quite a big factor in the success of a rider in MotoGP is like how well they get along with their crew chief. Um, because once once that that trust is not there between crew chief and rider, then things just don't don't go as well. Like the rider thinks that you know the bike should be set up one way, and the crew chief thinks it should be set up a different way. And like the rider questions the bike that the crew chief is giving him, so that that can be kind of a that's, that, that's the basis of the plot of Days of Thunder, right? <laughs> that movie. Yeah. Right. Where, right. You know, the crew chief and, and the engineer not or the the racer not getting along. Right. Um, are there wild card drivers in um, Formula One? Like, uh, no. well, yeah, I know what you're talking about. There's so there's there's no wild card drivers like there is in like Indy or something like that. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have uh, reserve drivers. Um, so if somebody's sick or injured, um, you know, they could put a reserve driver into place. Uh, they also have test drivers that are typically different, um, you know, from the actual uh, the main drivers. Okay, that's interesting because um, like wild cards are very common in MotoGP and even in in the in the support classes Moto2 and Moto3. Maybe not so much Moto2, but Moto3 for sure there are wild cards. Um, Moto3 wild cards are often used for um, for some of the bigger teams to like try out some of the younger riders from uh, like an up and coming series. Um, just give them a little audition or a little tryout. Um, you know, especially like if the bigger teams can afford it, they'll field a, a wild card um, rider. Um, but then in in MotoGP, it's 
it's pretty common for like a, a test rider to um, have a contract with the manufacturer that allows them the wild card a few races. Because um, I mean, the, the the test riders want to race. You know, a lot of them are ex racers or at least they're ex full time racers. So just um, giving them the opportunity to race is kind of kind of part of their compensation package. And um, so they'll have like pretty much full factory uh, bike sometimes. Like I know Michele Piro is 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 pretty frequently on the grid as a he's a test rider for ducati and he uh races a few times per year um and he does pretty well actually um but um i think that that's one of the areas where formula one could improve um see what else i didn't really have i feel like i had another question um uh about formula one but i can't quite remember what it is so what i would say with with just to kind of finish that up is with um with with test drivers uh you know like esteban gutierrez is a test driver for mercedes so you know somebody like that is is in that seat hoping that eventually you know they can prove themselves in testing and they can move up right Mm -hmm. Uh, if if they're not going to pull from formula two or formula three or another driver from formula one into their seat they would generally look at test drivers as another option um you know alexander rossi he was a test driver for lotus for a while and before he went over to indy um and um blanking on his name who's the williams driver uh current no, he he just left last Daniel season. Kvyat. Who? Oh, Robert Kubica. Robert Kubica. Oh. Yep. yep. So Robert Kubica is an example of somebody who he retired from Formula One, but he actually went on to be a he's a test driver for Alpha. And because um, it, it threw me off, I knew he was a test driver for Alpha, but um, I was looking at the results from the practice day that they had prior to, you know, Melbourne supposed to happen. And um, I look and who set the fastest lap that day? It was Robert Kubica. I'm like, Robert Kubica? I was like, what? Then I looked and it was like in an Alpha Romeo. I was like, wait a minute, he's driving for Alpha? And then I forgot he was a test driver. And so he was just testing the car that day. Um, so, you know, it, it's stuff like that. You know, you do that a few times, you'll get a seat. Now he's not looking for a seat because he already gave up a seat. Um, but, you know, it's still kind of cool to see him on the grid. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, with that, I think uh, we can dive into a little bit about why I think that uh, Formula One can learn from MotoGP. What? Is way better. <laughs> why Formula One is way better. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's certainly it's certainly way bigger. I mean, there's no question that Formula One has has like a, a lot a lot bigger of a following um, than uh, than MotoGP. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be nice to see wildcard drivers. Um, I think it would help mix things up a little bit. Um, I think one of the interesting things about Formula One is that, um, like, there's this weird, and I don't know what to do about it, and I don't know exactly how it came to be, but there's, like, a weird, it's just weird to me that some of the works or the factory teams are kind of like borrowing from other factory teams like McLaren will use Mercedes engines. Mm-hmm. Um, they use Renault engines, but Renault is also a factory team. Mercedes is a factory team. I think Haas is, does Haas use Ferrari engines? Um, something like that. I mean, well, Haas isn't a works team, so that's, that's kind of beside the point, but like, I mean, Red Bull was using Renault engines. Um, who else? Uh, yeah. Like there's this kind of weird dynamic there. And I just wonder to what extent that's kind of hindering the series because, um, you know, like, like is, is Mercedes going to give the best engine to McLaren that they can? You know, who knows? Like, like it's kind of weird that like there's like a conflict of interest 
almost like if if Mercedes wants to be the best uh, factory team, why like why should they give McLaren another fact which is another factory team? Why should they give them equal equal equipment and sh- support? Do you know what I'm? Does that make sense? Yeah, I I actually I really agree with that. Um, because I don't I also don't like that. I don't like when you see Renault giving engines to other team. Um. You know, someone like Honda giving Red Bull an engine, I'm okay with that because there's not a Honda car. Right, exactly. It's a partnership in a sense, right? So, right. but yeah, Mercedes giving McLaren an engine, I think that's good for McLaren. But you're right, um, they're not going to give them the best one. Um, you know, once they have it, they can do things to it. So it's it's and that and that's kind of what it is. Like when you get the engine, you get the Mercedes engine. Like you can you can work on it, right? You can you yeah. can do stuff to it. So there's still some flexibility there. Um, and, you know, what if Mercedes wasn't called Mercedes and they were just called, um, you know, uh, Patronas or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if they were called that and then they, you know, Mercedes was their partnership and then, you know, McLaren also had a partnership with Mercedes. Um, you know, that's kind of the same thing, except Mercedes is putting their brand behind one of those cars. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. And, um, you know, if it was just called Patronus and, and Mercedes, and then it was called, you know, McLaren Mercedes, um, then I think that would be, I would be okay with that as long as, you know, they're both running a Mercedes emblem and they're, you know, one car is not silver, like a, you know, like every Mercedes or something like that. Yeah. 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 So, or like Ferrari, you know, if they wanted to provide motors for other cars um, outside of themselves, then there shouldn't be a Ferrari team. Yeah. I'm in agreement with that. I think, um, you know, is it, is that, you know, company diversification where they're saying, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to race in the top team with our, with our Mercedes engine, our Mercedes car, but we also want to race in the midfield with Mercedes because how cool would it be to win the top and the midfield? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what Red Bull's doing, but they, they bought a whole nother team or, or created a whole nother team. So, uh, yeah, I would I would be in agreement with that. Um, I, I wish there was more engine manufacturers that came into the picture. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way it works in MotoGP is a lot more like the relationship between Red Bull and Toro Rosso. Um, it's not quite like so, so, so close, like, like junior team, um, but it's it's like the it's a private team that gets factory like heavy heavy factory support right um like lcr honda is the the um is the privateer honda team in moto gp and um like they get a lot of support from repsol honda which is the main factory honda honda team um and one like lcr for a while they only had one rider now they have two um and then even within that team, like one of the riders is really more of the designated, um, like factory supported riders. Um, and so kind of the trade off is like, well, we're going to give a lot of factory support, but that means we get to have all the data from this rider. Right. And and we get to use this rider almost like another test rider. So, yeah. you know, Cal Crutchlow, a British rider, um, he's the full-time rider for LCR Honda, he is he does act as kind of a workhorse for Honda, uh, testing various parts during tests and stuff. Um, he gets a lot of support from Honda, but then in exchange, uh, LCR has to give all the data to the factory squad. Um, so I just I just wonder if if like a closer relationship between a manufacturer and a private team. Um, see, like the thing that the biggest difference that I'm thinking of is I, like a lot of the teams in MotoGP 
are like they're just there for a little bit different reasons at least for the private the private teams like and they just hang around for a, a lot longer like lcr honda's been around or yeah lcr honda's been around for years and years and years and years because it's just one guy who operates the team and and then uh fausto grassini's been in the paddock for years and years and years and right now he's running the aprilia team but like Grassini team, LCR, Honda, uh, Tech Trois has been around for like 20 years because it's operated by one French guy, um, you know, who owns it. Whereas when I hear you talk about Formula One, there's all these teams that used to be and now they don't exist. And like there are these team changes, um, you know, it's kind of like that relationship between the teams doesn't seem to be there. Um and I think part of it, maybe it's just finances or it's just so expensive to be in Formula One that like private teams aren't going to, I mean, it, see, I guess you could say it's like Williams. Um, what's another, like, what's a more, what's a private team with a legacy like Williams? McLaren. There, yeah, McLaren. But they're, McLaren's a works team though, technically. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's not any more, but you know, elf team, things like that. Um, right, right. It's like. Yeah, it's like if if Williams, so like if you had Red Bull and then Toro Rosso and then you had Mercedes and then Williams was like the junior team for Mercedes um, and like they were basically very close. And like, you know, if Williams had been uh, running Mercedes for like 10 years, you know, and so Williams were kind of like the workhorses for Mercedes and a lot, you know the drivers would go from Williams to Mercedes. Like, you know, you're hoping George Russell will um, like that. That I think those kind of relationships between factory teams and private teams needs to happen for formula one to, I don't know, just to, just to function a little bit better, not be so cutthroat um, and not to have situations like with racing point versus, you know, force India and racing point and, you know, Haas team, they're relatively new. Um, so they, they don't have much of a legacy, but like, if you look at MotoGP, these legacy teams have been around for a long time. And then the teams that are a lot more like Haas, um, they're, they're just back of the pack. You know, I mean, I don't know how long Real Aventia has been around, but the, the Aventia team is like really not, they're kind of back markers. Um, and who else? Well, Aspar team, they're kind of, you know, there are random teams that are kind of in and out of MotoGP. But they they never really get to the level of like like junior team or or like you know like that close satellite team. So like Ducati has Pramac Ducati and Yamaha had Tech Trois for a while, but now they have Petronas Yamaha and Honda has LCR and KTM now has um, is with Tech Trois. So like it's like a manufacturer is fielding three or four vehicles instead of just two. And so I think that formula has really benefited. Um, MotoGP and it's really benefited Ducati in particular because kind of in the middle of the, the economic recession, um, teams kind of dropped out like flies a little bit and um, there were all kinds of funky rules that got implemented and so there were different kind of kind of like there were different levels of private teams. There were like satellite teams um, and then there were open class teams and there was like some other like claiming rules teams or a CRT team. Um, so there was all kind of funky stuff going on. But during that time, um, Ducati supplied machinery to a lot of the private teams, a lot of the open class teams. And so you looked at the grid and it was like every other bike was a Ducati um, and had a lot and had a decent amount of, of Ducati support. And so, but at the time, the factory Ducatis really weren't doing very well. And I think um, that opportunity paid dividends for them because once the the spec ECU 
um, came out in like 2013, 14, something like that, Ducati had a leg up because they had been using that same ECU in their uh, in their factory supported privateer bikes. So they already had a handle on the new on the new uh, software and hardware compared with the other factories like Honda and Yamaha, which had been using the their own proprietary ECU. So um, like for Ducati, it worked out really well, and it, and it provided a really clear example of why a factory should give a really good amount of support to a um to a private team mm-hmm. um yeah other little things let's see um aside from the the actual machinery end of it i mean yeah something's got to be done about the the formula one cars man i mean that the tires are so fat the cars are so they're so long the wheelbase is so long the the cars look really laborious getting around corners um i mean i think that the the tires should be made skinnier um the cars should be shorter they should get rid of a little bit of aerodynamics to make the cars a little bit prettier because they're kind of ugly right now and um uh increase traction control i mean MotoGP does traction control very well um and as i have said on a previous episode like it's a lot of it is a safety thing but at the same time like they they do it like they can really hone and fine-tune that traction control so because like you know they can hammer on that uh, that throttle coming out of a corner and like keep keep the bike planted, but then sometimes they can just power wheelie. Like I don't know, the technology is there so that like they can rip you know rip on that throttle around the corner and stay planted, or they can rip on the throttle in certain con- in a certain circumstance and just pop a wheelie, you know, no problem. So the technology is there to to fine tune it so that it's not just a matter of like oh the the driver in Formula One is just slamming on the accelerator. On the slamming on the gas out of a corner and and doesn't have to modulate their their uh, their throttle use their the use of the accelerator pedal. Um, so yeah, I think uh, Formula One should should definitely start with the cars to help make the racing a little bit closer. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with you that the cars are too big. I mean, if you look at them in Monaco, it looks ridiculous. Um, I think they started getting bigger after they stopped refueling because they needed more room for the, the bigger gas tanks. Mm. Uh, once they stopped, uh, they stopped doing refueling in Formula One, which was what 2010 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and they they look longer. I mean, if you put you know a, a McLaren today next to like an MP44 McLaren from 1993, you know the it's ridiculous looking. Um, and uh, that hairpin at Monaco, that like downhill, you know, right-hander hairpin, um, it's it's sometimes if you don't cut the wheel just right, like you're going to get stuck and you're going to have to mm-hmm. put it in reverse and, and do what I call an Austin Powers, like where he gets stuck, you know, trying to back oh, up. Yeah, the, yeah. The movie. <laughs> and um, but yeah, so it's 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 yeah, I agree with that. Um, I'm all about aero. So, you know, uh, the more that they can do with with aerodynamics, you know, maybe because I've. I come from being a pilot and I just think it's cool to see an upside down airplane on top of a car. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'm all about the arrow. I'm not about the traction control. I mean, if they're able to handle it now, um, it stops them from, from getting in over their head. Right. So if, or, or it, you know, it, it forces them to not get in over their head. I should say, if they're going into a corner, you know, and they're really pushing it with somebody else, they have to be, they have all this adrenaline. They want to pass this car. There's danger. There's all sorts of things. And yet at the same time, they need to know that I can only put my foot down a little bit because if I go too far, 
I'm going to lose control. So like a driver being able to go, you know, fast into a corner alongside somebody else, but still have to keep the car in balance and do all that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what that's what honestly excites me the most is that kind of thing. So traction control would be a little bit of a killer for me because, yeah, they can go faster. But then I'll know that oh, they're both flooring it. And then it's whoever has the better car at that point. Um, so it's, it's more important to me that the driver is in as much control as possible. Um, you know, and you know, like races that are won in the pits and stuff like that, like that just doesn't quite do it for me. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, but you know, for some people it does people like, you know, the engineers, they like when, you know, the engineers make a call of, okay, switch to to mode 10, which is going to give you the most horsepower. Okay. Now cut back because we need to reserve here. Mm -hmm. And things like that like there's a lot of that going on but for me the most exciting part is is when it comes down to you know who wants it more and who yeah. can it more who who saved their tires well enough to get to this point so that now they can push and now you know now when it really matters do they have what it takes and do they have you know the the car still in good order from from uh from the rest of the race so yeah, I, uh, I I agree about the length of the car and the size of the car. Um, I disagree about the tires. I like the wide tires, you know, more grip, wider tires. I'm okay with that. Um, uh, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with the size of the tires. I think there's something wrong with the length of the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the arrow. Um, I like the no traction control. Um, and I was kicking and screaming with the turbos even <laughs> when those came out. Just because they don't, they they sound like crap. I'm sorry. They, just, they sound so bad compared to like a V10 car, but... Now, you know, just listening to a V10 car on YouTube is is, is still kind of cool and, and, you know, nostalgic and everything. But uh, I don't know, man. Um, I'm also, you know, I, I like that we're developing this technology because I think it's it's kind of cool to have in, in cars and, and where that's ultimately going to lead. So I see it. I get it. I hated it at first. And now I'm just like, well, whatever. It's, it is what it is. And we're here. Um, but yeah. So what's the difference between the technology of aero versus technology of traction control? Because, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you, you kind of don't want to see like whoever has the better traction control is going to come, is going to be better off coming out of a corner. Well, I feel like I can counter that and say, well, wouldn't whoever has the better aero package be better around a corner anyway? Well, they'd be better around the corner, but then not on the straightaway. So it's a give and take. Arrow is still a game and arrow is mechanical versus, you know, something that's that a computer is going to control. So the driver needs to realize how the arrow is going to be set up. So first of all, the engineers need to look at the track and decide how they want to set the arrow. And then with the driver, knowing what the arrow is set at, they need to know, okay, I'm going to be faster than this guy in the corner, but he's going to be faster on the straight. So my only chance getting past him is going to be in the corner. Um, and now I can't be too close to him going in, you know, or I can't be in front of somebody else because then I'm going to lose that over the front wing. So it's still a lot of, of mental game with the driver um, doing that. So I would I would argue that they're completely different in that sense. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like Formula One is entertainment. And I think I'm glad that Liberty Media Group, who took over from Bernie Ecclestone, kind of sees that a lot more than I think Bernie Ecclestone did. Um, you know, I want more entertaining racing. I want closer racing, more entertaining racing. Um, so I don't care as much about Arrow. Like, I would love to see more of the slipstreaming. I want to see prettier cars. Um, yeah, I just like, I want to, I want it to be entertaining. And I don't, you know, I think if there was one technology to get rid of, yeah, I think I would agree with you on the, the turbo thing. 
um, just to get a naturally aspirated engines. That's what MotoGP uses anyway. They don't use any turbos or superchargers or anything. Just naturally aspirated um, engines. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, there's a lot that they that they could do to make it more entertaining. I think they could add wild cards um, to just mix things up a little bit. I think would be kind of fun. Um, at least on for see, this is so funny and interesting. Like for as as much money as involved in Formula One, it took a long time for them to come out with a proprietary uh, race streaming service. I mean, maybe it was just because they had really long-standing contracts with uh, television broadcasters, whereas MotoGP did not. But MotoGP came out with a streaming service live and on demand years before Formula One did. And they've got all kinds of content on it. They show the Moto2 and the Moto3 races um, and have those on demand as well. Whereas, I don't know if you've played around with the proprietary uh, F1 streaming service, but I cannot find f2 or f3 races you know for me i want to see the support races i want to see closer racing i mean because sometimes you know let's be honest MotoGP can be a lot like formula one and like one one guy dominates like marquez or in the days of uh, of jorge lorenzo's really strong days at yamaha just taking off leading lights to flag and you know nobody touches him um it, it has been that way and so sometimes it can be a lot of fun to watch the Moto3 and Moto2 races, which are very, very close, very, very tight a lot of times. Um, mm-hmm. Part of that is Moto2 is a, is a spec engine um, class, so everybody's running the same exact engine, um, although the teams get to choose their, their chassis setups and suspension and everything else. Um, but I want to I know who the up-and-coming drivers are, and I can't do that if I can't watch F2 and F3. I have no idea who's coming up through the ranks um in in the formula one grand prix paddock um because they're just it's just not there on on the streaming um and like even even you don't really know that much about it which is which is interesting um i know that there like there were complaints from the manufacturers about the budget caps and stuff i think from ferrari maybe mercedes but i don't think for ferrari will probably never leave formula one unless unless formula one becomes like airplane racing which it won't as long as formula one stays like reasonable and and car racing i I don't think ferrari will ever leave and i think that liberty media group any they should impose anything reasonable that people want in order to make formula one more entertaining closer racing and if any manufacturer says oh if you do this then we're going to leave then then liberty media group should call their bluff and be like okay bye because they're if you make it cheap enough like the, if, if you make it worth a manufacturer's time and money, a manufacturer is going to come along and join Formula One, right? Like maybe Por- like if Mercedes went away, maybe Porsche would take their place or BMW or um, or Honda. Maybe we'd have a factory Honda team or um, or maybe an American manufacturer would come in, a Ford or somebody. Like Formula One will always be the pinnacle. And if it's the pinnacle... It is what it is, and and there's n- there's nothing else unless somebody is going to create some other world championship series to rival Formula One, which would be insanely difficult. Um, I think that any complaints from manufacturers should be, you know, Liberty Media should call their bluff and just be like, I don't care, go ahead and leave, pack your bags, because when you leave, somebody else will take your place. Yeah, so that's that's tough. I think 
I don't know how many teams are actually willing to jump in because Formula One is so expensive and how much recognition does it actually bring? So what's the trade-off? I know we think, I think we talked about this on our first episode. Um, so, you know, like if Ferrari said, well, I'm leaving Formula One and let me change this. I actually think it's the other way. I think that they probably need Ferrari because how many people are diehard Ferrari fans? And if Ferrari puts a spin on, oh, Formula One screwed us over and so we had to leave, you know, how many fans are they going to lose? And, you know, you look in the stadiums and how many people are wearing red out there for Ferrari? Are they just going to say, all right, well, I'm going to switch to McLaren. I'm going to switch to another team now. Um, Or are they going to say, well, you know, I was here for Ferrari, so... Formula One is less interesting if I don't have a team to root for. Um, you know, so I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know what the, the money works out to be to see, you know, does it make sense for Ford to create a Formula One team? Does it make sense for Honda to come in? Um, you know, can they afford it? Yeah, but is it really going to be worth their return on investment? Mm-hmm. Um, or are they just going to be doing it because it's something that's fun to do? Um, you know, so that's 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 a, a point, but I don't know how many people are actually vying to, to come in and take these spots. I think maybe somebody would you know if racing point said we're done you know somebody might come in and buy up the team mm-hmm. you know when jaguar said that they were done red bull came in and bought them up um but uh you know it, it's tough if if a team like ferrari left would a private team come in or you know would a honda come in you know who right. would it be? and that's i have no idea i i have no idea what that pipeline even looks like i can't even speculate. yeah so. yeah it really i mean i think maybe it would come down to like not just manufacturers, but maybe drivers. I mean, let's say you took away Mercedes and Ferrari, you know, and it was just the other factory teams. But you had Lewis Hamilton, uh, Charles Leclerc, you know, all the top, top, top drivers going to the McLaren and the Renault and um, who else? McLaren, Renault, and Red Bull is already a works team. Are there other works teams? You know, or going to like a Williams Mercedes where, 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 where like... Mercedes is giving Williams very, very nearly like factory support. Like their their machinery is on par with, um, you know, a Red Bull Honda or whatever, right? Yeah. Like if or if, um, I mean, yeah, but yeah, is, that, like, then is it just going to be a, a circle at that point where? Mercedes drops out of Formula One, then they put money into Williams, but then they say you have to run our name, so then it becomes Mercedes, and then they grow to be the best team again, and then something happens in Formula One, they drop out, they go to the other team. You know, is that is that just going to create a circle of that sense if these big teams drop out and then go to support junior teams and put their names on them, and then before they know it, they're running another team? Maybe. I mean... Because if they can do it better, you know, why not just do it? Yes. I mean, it just depends on how much they want their name in there and like what what kind of support is is happening um yeah i don't know i mean there's only one team that does it in MotoGP, and that's aprilia grassini um and both of their names are in the team name right aprilia racing team grassini is is i think the official the official name um they're not a real they're not a bad team necessarily but i think that's more of an aprilia factory thing um but I don't know. I mean, Ayrton Senna won races with uh, with McLaren and with um, with Williams, and those are not. I mean, maybe at the time McLaren was like a top factory team. So I mean, Mercedes hasn't always been there. The pretty much the only factory that's been there forever is Ferrari. Um, you know, it would be a it would be a chess match between Ferrari and the the Formula One organizers because I I can agree that that Formula One stands to lose a lot if they lose Ferrari. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it just depends. Like at the end of the day, if the racing is good, and if the racing is entertaining, and if the drivers are entertaining, 
um, you know, that draws draw, draws people in. Yeah, that's also us talking, you know. You got a guy who owns a Ferrari and goes to the races just so he can, you know, look at it, um, you know, look at the Ferrari team. You know, is, is he going to go out and buy a Mercedes and watch Mercedes? Or is he going to say, well, you know, they're out, so I'll just go, I'll watch, you know, I'll switch over and watch Le Mans. I'll watch, uh, you know, the, the 488s go at it. Right. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that about wraps it up for this episode of the Petrol Head Podcast. Uh, we've thoroughly covered uh, some of the important aspects of both Formula One and MotoGP, what makes them different, what makes them similar, and um, how maybe we can we can work a few things out in Formula One to help boost its popularity, make the racing a little bit closer and more entertaining. I'm Kyle. I'm saying see you later. Chaz Logue, speed safely. <laughs>